welcome back to Into the Garden with Leslie. I had a nice little break and I skipped an episode somewhere in there in January, but I am back, not so tanned, rested, and ready for episode 86. This podcast is sponsored by Dos Amigos Landscaping, Color Blends Bulbs, and GreatGardenPlants.com, and my friend, artist Karen Blair. I am Leslie Harris, a gardener who likes to talk the talk and is even more capable at walking the walk in terms of garden enjoyment, experimentation, and a fair share of failure. That's all part of it. Our plant of the week is the banyan tree, and that could be considered to be a fairly selfish choice, but I'm working on this episode while in Florida, and so that's my inspiration. I'll be chatting with Richard Hockey of the Chicago Botanic Garden about a bunch of great garden plants, all perennials. And the playlist is about what to do in your garden this week, or at least what I'm doing. You you do you. So I went to this thing, this big thing called Mance, which is the Mid-Atlantic Nursery Trade Show. And if you've ever been to a trade show, you know what sort of thing that is. It's like lots of booths, lots of exhibitors, lots of people, lots of walking. And because it's the nursery trade, lots and lots and lots of plants. From of the tiniest succulents to full-on like 20-foot trees and everything in between. There was even a booth for really mature boxwoods, some of which were five to six feet tall and like sitting in this convention hall, hundreds of pounds. They had made the journey to Baltimore. This is a cool company that rescues mature boxwoods from sites, presumably sites where they're looking to get rid of them. I'm pretty sure they didn't just steal them like out of the ground. Anyway, they are taken care of and they're ready to be instant gratification for some deep-pocketed homeowners. The company's called George Bridge Landscape Design. I'll put links to it and other things that I'm talking about in the show notes on lhgardens.com. Kathy Jentz, who has been on this podcast before, and me on hers, she of the Garden DC podcast, well, you can listen to her talk about the event much more and quiz me on my impressions of it as a new visitor. It was the first time I had ever been. So give a listen on the Garden DC podcast from... By the time you listen to this from two weeks ago, if you are hungering for more information. Additionally, Susan Harris of the Garden Rant blog posted on Mance. And because of my pals Marianne Wilburn and Scott Berline, fellow ranters of Susan, I, along with Abby Shellhamer of Abigail Gardens and Sarah Schrock, her manager of operations at Abigail Gardens, we actually snuck into a photo on that blog on Garden Rant. Good times, good times. And big time. I love being on that, even though I've taken better photographs. No matter, I love being on Garden Rant. Mance is a trade show for sure. And because it's to the trade, you know that it's aimed at people who are in the trade. And I don't think it would hold much interest for the typical personal gardener. But now let's see if on a 40 degree cloudy day, you were in Charm City, aka Baltimore, and you wanted to take a nice long walk. Why not be surrounded by plants? And not just plants, but tools, gear, large digging machines, machines that would pot up plants, machines that would print out plant labels, sprayers, and what goes in them, sadly. Think of anything that has anything to do with gardening. It's not like all peonies and roses, by golly. Here's the most interesting booth I stumbled into. A guy named Neil who was a very keen gardener, and he had a hand injury. And, you know, that's putting it lightly. He showed me his hand, and there wasn't much left in terms of fingers. So he invents this tool that makes it so you just don't have to work as hard, not him and not anybody, anybody who has 10 fingers, to use a strong two-handed grip and your lower back that you all probably know much too much about in terms of wielding a shovel. 
So what he made was actually a fork, which is also great for digging. And he had attached a sort of a a D-shaped, basically sort of 10-inch fulcrum to the back of the base of the fork. So the user of the fork is kind of using the earth as a prying surface, and therefore there's much less pressure on his or her arms, chest, and lower back. So that means everything is much easier. Neil had set up this cool demo at his booth. I mean, he had videos that were running on a screen, lots of screens at Nance. But the demo was the most effective at really proving his point. He had attached about 40 pounds of weights to the end, the digging part, of a normal fork. And he asked me to lift it carefully. And this was no fun at all. And it was clear to me that I don't generally harvest that amount of land when I'm going to dig in the dirt. But from there, he asked you to employ two fingers, only two, he insisted, to move the same amount of weight on a fork that he had set up to swing back and forth as if attached to the fulcrum on the fork that he was hawking. This is called the earth lifter tool, by the way. And please bear with me as I know I'm not really successfully describing it so that you can really visualize it. So go to the show notes and see the images and the links. It just struck me as so cool because of his story. He almost loses his hand. I don't know how. I didn't ask. I really didn't want to know. And then he makes this thing so that he can keep digging. Very, very cool. I don't think I need one in my toolkit because, as I mentioned, I just don't dig out the amount of earth that would merit such a mechanism. And also the very fulcrum that makes it possible for the earth to be the counterbalance so that you can leverage up that amount of weight would necessarily crush some other plant or just the earth, compact the soil, I suppose, as you dug up the one you wanted. But it would be great for landscaping crews. So it's not for me, but it's a really cool story. Oh, and one more cool story about Mance. The guys, or the people, I'm sure they're women, who raid the plants at the end. So apparently there are these people who want to take advantage of free plants. And apparently there are exhibitors who simply leave what they brought right there for the former group of people to take advantage of and clean it up for them. But Marianne and I ran into a couple of friends of hers who are volunteers for the National Arboretum. And they were there, this was on Wednesday, and Mance didn't even end until Friday. They were there scouting out the booths and making a list of places where they could come and get the plants, but they weren't for them. Their plan was to take care of these plants and donate them to a plant sale that benefits the National Arboretum. I thought that was really neat. Now, don't get me wrong. I've never one who's averse to free plants, but I like the idea of taking those free plants and making them even more valuable by raising money for a good cause. So to wrap, Mance is cool. I don't think everybody needs to go. I'm definitely going to go in the future, probably next year, but I don't think I need to go for more than one day. It was amazing, a little bit overwhelming, but really fun. So let's move on to the plant of the week. It is the banyan tree, and I am lucky enough to just have returned from a lovely little vacation down to this island, west coast of Florida, and it's called Boca Grande. Hurricane Ian made landfall just a few miles south of it last September. Lots of tarps on lots of roofs, and the palm trees just look strangely insignificant, shall we say? The fronds have just been carried away, and they haven't had time to grow back yet. They have this one cute little street on this tiny island, and it's called Banyan Street. And if you were to hop on Instagram, you would see this L.A. that's really more like a long, dark cavern of intense shade and these amazing tendrils of bark that become huge over the years going all down this street. It's actually such a scene that there are many proposals and I think even some simple weddings that take place on that street. It's, it's very romantic. 
Jeff and I make a point to walk down it. We don't get romantic really, but every time we go to this island, because it's it's really the sight of these trees is extraordinary. But Hurricane Ian made Boca Grande and this street look very different this time. Clearly, a good arborist team had already come through to do their work. And you know, there's a huge change of light coming into these plants. So I bet you they fill back in pretty fast. And this alley was planted in 1915, so it probably has seen the likes of Hurricane Ian before. But let's zero in on this amazing plant for a minute. There are over 750 types of ficus, and this is a ficus. Looks like this is the biggest one. The Banyan's botanical name is the ficus bengalensis, and it's native to India. It's actually considered sacred there, and it is the national tree. And because it gets so large, it provides really important shade in a very hot climate. According to the Missouri Botanical Garden, its bark lowers blood sugar and is used to treat diabetes. This tree is the biggest in the world, or it can be, and we're not talking tall, although it can grow up to 30 meters. It just keeps getting wider and wider. It's like it's, it walks. It walks around and starts new bits of it all the time. There's a rumor that it sheltered Alexander the Great's army of 20,000 men at one stage. Yeah, I don't know if I believe that, but never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Another source said 7,000 men, and that makes a little bit more sense. The largest known specimen of tree covers 205,670 square feet. And because I know where the converter lies on my Google search, I can tell you that that is over four and a half acres. You could put a battalion or two in that space, I'm thinking. Now, most of us can't grow a banyan tree. This is tropical, but we can marvel at the wonderful and unique looking plant. And I thought I'd give you some fun facts about it. I got a lot of these from a guy named Mike Shanahan, who has written a blog called Under the Banyan and also a book called Ladders to Heaven. I don't think this is the Mike Shanahan who coached the Broncos, but hey, I, I could be wrong. I'll link to his work in the show notes. Banyan trees produce seeds and aerial roots, and both of these get going and can strangle the trees that are nearby them. Shanahan says they grow from seeds that land on other trees. The roots they send down smother their hosts and grow into stout branch-supporting pillars that resemble new tree trunks. Banyans are a huge source of food for birds, bats, and small mammals, and of course, they provide a ton of shelter. They're like the co-op city of trees. Hindus say that the Bhagavad Gita was delivered underneath of a banyan tree. There's a nice parallel there with the immortality of the soul and the persistence of the roots that become the trunks, I think. And lastly, the banyan tree has a unique relationship with a particular wasp, which is the only one that can pollinate it, and they've been helping each other out for thousands of years. What the banyan trees don't tend to help out, however, are those neighboring trees, because if the seeds from their figs fall on one, it basically strangles the other tree since its aerial roots go down and add to the colonization situation. They are literally called strangler trees, not, not the cutest of nicknames. So sometimes I get really cute and I say, plant of the wheat, give it a grow. But I don't, I don't, I don't really recommend growing this. I just recommend admiring them. Hey, my friend Karen Blair is a Charlottesville-based painter whose work is exuberant, abstract, and bold with color and shapes, and she takes commissions. And one of you listeners out there has been smart enough to send her photographs of your garden that you wanted to get onto one of her large canvases. Y'all go to the show notes on lhgardens.com and see examples and links to her work, and you're going to love it. Coming up, we're going to be talking with Richard Hawkey who is somebody that everybody wants to hear from because of his plant trials and his vast knowledge on the different types of perennials and how they perform. He's eloquent and you're going to hear some great things from him, but you know what? 
With this interview, it's just, it's a little below par in terms of audio for some unfathomable reason. I am sorry about this, but Richard, it's totally worth a slight inconvenience on your ears. You know, here I sit doing these podcasts all by myself, waiting to be discovered like Lana Turner in Schwab's drugstore. If anybody out there wants to volunteer to help me improve my audio sound, get in touch. I'm doing the best that I can. This one isn't the best. But here's Richard and me discussing his work and some of his favorite plants, which have become some of my new plants, and also information on an organization that you might want to know about called the Perennial Plant Association. Welcome back to Into the Garden with Leslie. Richard Hockey has been with the Chicago Botanic Garden in Glencoe, Illinois, since 1985, which is a long time. I'm looking at a man on Zoom who doesn't look like he's been working in any garden for that long, but I guess maybe the sunshine rays have been kind to him. His current title is the Director of Ornamental Plant Research, which means that he's all over the plant breeding, plant evaluation, and plant introduction of some of our favorite plants, which are perennials. And I heard him speak at the gardening conference in Asheville, North Carolina, that I keep talking about on this podcast, and Richard is another one of the speaking of gardening guests that I successfully stalked to come into the garden with Leslie. I just, I was fascinated by his talk and I really didn't understand, you know, when you're in the nursery and you're like, well, this heuchera or that heuchera, I didn't really understand all the information that could go into this sort of thing. And he has it. And that's why I wanted to have him on. Welcome, Richard. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Leslie. It's great to be here. Well, good. So tell us, you know, I I introduced you so quickly, but tell us more about what you do and why gardeners would be totally interested in it. Awesome. Yeah. My my current title of our Director of Ornamental Plant Research is is just as of January, but all those other eons before that, going back to 85, I did manage the plant evaluation program. And, and so that's really where my, my interest and my love is, but I, you know, breeding and introduction go along with that. And so the continuum was kind of nice, but, but generally our, our evaluation program is centered in Chicago, what's in the North shore of Chicago. So it's in, it's in zone 5B and we are doing comparative trials and primarily of perennials, although we do look at some woody plants when we have the space, we've just enlarged our garden triple the size of our, our garden and the, our ability to, to evaluate more plants. And in that, we now have a little bit more luxury of space for uh, woody plants. So we will we'll do a little bit of that. But generally speaking, again, a comparative trialing where we're collecting everything uh, that we can find that's commercially available, growing them in a similar condition, and then basically comparing them. And out of that, you get, I guess you get the greater idea of, of not only what a plant looks like, but how well it performs. And, you know, this takes us way back to the mid-80s when you know, hookahs were actually coming out sort of fast and furious at the time for a perennial plant group. And it was like, well, we don't, what, what? you know, there's so many of them. Which what are all these good? plants? Yeah, what are all these? What, you know, why are there so many of them all of a sudden? And so, interestingly enough, hookah is actually what started Oh. The program we've been doing all these years, it was the group that was like, whoa, we need to, we can contribute here. We can grow all of these things and just see which ones, you know, how they differ, how they're the same, which are better, which thrive, which don't. All of those kind of things that a gardener wants to know. And so we did that. And because of that, and because of the way that people viewed what we were doing, 
we wanted to grow. And of course, at the same time, the perennial industry was growing. So in the late 80s, we built the garden that you can see behind me. And that's our full sun evaluation garden. And that was built in 1989. So just four years into, into my tenure, again, thanks to Hukra in a way. And so over the years, we've looked at a lot of perennials uh, in this garden, which is a full sun garden. And we've been able to let people know what we think are the best of the groups that we've looked at. And I was fascinated to hear that you really don't mollycoddle these things and you go for a long time. This is not one season of growth. Let's see how you do. Oh, maybe it was a good year. Maybe it was a bad year. Tell us about the timing and the conditions. Yeah. So when we started this, we did have a very uh, robust discussion about timing. My boss at the time had recently come to Chicago from British Columbia and he felt two years was sufficient. And I said, yeah, you need to spend two years here before you know that's not true, because no two years are the same. Uh, they might be in, in British Columbia, but they're not here. So we settled on four, okay. which we think is a good time. I think in some cases that's not enough. And in other cases, it's probably more than enough. But I think what's interesting, if I just digress for a second, I think what's interesting about that timeline, it worked really well for a very long time. The industry is moving so fast and furiously that four years can be detrimental to getting the information out about some plants because in four years, they're just not there anymore. And not necessarily because they're not good plants, but just because something else has to have that space. But I'm not, I'm not modifying. If, if I know a plant group really well, I, I might consider three years, but I'm sticking with four years. And then as far as taking care of the plants, early on, we hit on the idea that we should be doing this for the homeowner you know, whether the nursery gets our information and they use it to decide what to grow or whatever, that's all great. And that's what we want to do. But ultimately, the end user is almost always the homeowner. And we think the average homeowner might water. <laughs> we think, we hope, right? We hope they'll we're, water. We're fingers crossed that that guy yeah, has a Yeah, fingers host. crossed that, you know, I mean, I, I know plenty of people who work in the garden centers and that is, there are plenty of people that come in and say, this plant died. And uh, what water, what's that? Um, so it's, a, it's a, but the idea is this is what we should do. So we early on started the idea that we don't do any, any deadheading, any staking, any division, no pest or disease control as far as chemicals are concerned. We have excluded deer and rabbits occasionally when it just was so detrimental. We're like, okay, we're going to be a little artificial here. But even that we've, we've thrown out. We're now just put them in the ground. If they do well with the, the amount of irrigation, we hope they're getting and not excessively. But you can see, I think you can see in that image that our paths are grass, turf grass. And sometimes they do warrant more water than maybe the plant should get. But generally, we, we have modified our, our irrigation schedule to keep that to a very minimum. And then we do mulch for water conservation and aesthetics, and we do weed. Okay. Uh, that's, and again, aesthetics. It is a public garden. It is accessible. As it is considered one of our display gardens. So we do want to, we want it to look good. But because we don't hit deadhead and we don't do a lot of things, if that plant looks just nasty in June and July and August, it looks nasty. We're not going to. You're going to leave it there. Yeah, which there, it's sitting there. And we do get questions sometimes. And 
like w w w this is poor gardening yeah it probably <laughs> is but the fact is that's our goal is to not do a thing and so we we view this site also as an opportunity for anyone in it to do their own evaluation so if you're going down the line and you're looking at a group of I don't know, let's say salvias. Mm -hmm. And and you're going, oh, beautiful, beautiful. Oh, that's a dog. <laughs> and that's that's informing you. Of course, that's a moment in time. Mm -hmm. And we're doing it longer, so it's not just a moment in time. But the reality is if someone's in the garden, they can quickly see that's not the one to get. And and that I think can be helpful right then and there. Now, because it is, you know, a, a garden where people have paid money to enter and they're walking down your paths and they're seeing some uh, dogs, some gruesome plants, you know, can you, have you ever considered just saying, well, clearly this would not do well in our trial. We don't care how not well it will do. And we will now be replacing it. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, there are, there are plenty of times when we've just like this, this has proven its case. It doesn't have to be here anymore. Uh, we also do temporary signage where we can actually put out and have put out a sign that says, yes, this looks bad, but this is why. This is why it's still here. And the, our evaluation gardens are very well signed for, with permanent signage as well as with temporary so that people come in and understand it is a trial garden. Now, interestingly, our new garden doesn't look anything like this. It is still a trial garden, but it looks far more like a landscaped garden. And I think that's going to take a little extra work to get people to understand these plants are still under trial because they, they're not laid out in a row and they're not side by side and there's bigger quantities. And, you know, it's just, it's because of the nature of the design of the garden that we're, we couldn't do it this way. And I don't think it affects our evaluation. It just affects the interpretation of it. What you're describing is more of a Pete Adolf sort of look, sort of a meadowy thing. And how do the people who are looking at that, in effect, how are the people who are taking the data um, get into that garden if there are no paths? How do you wander around? It's, it's actually a Peter Wirtz garden, who is a Belgian landscape architect. And if you, if you know his work, he does a lot of structure with plants. So a lot of hedges, a lot of curvilinear hedges, sort of circular enclosed areas, this sort of idea of mystery as you walk through the garden. Well, in a more traditional Wirtz garden, you would see turf grass in the interspaces. That's where we have our bigger displays, but they're all separate. Oh, nothing's mixed together. So there's still the the twelve hellebores of this type, and here's twelve others here, and and it all depends on how big those inner spaces are, as how much is in there. The other difference it has from this garden is that it it's going to have a lot of microclimate. Oh yes, because of all that different hedging and the different plants that are used as barriers and and boundaries and and whatnot. Uh, there's going to be far more uh, microclimates. And it's also a shade evaluation garden, even though it's all going to come from natural shade and will take its time becoming a lot of shade. That will also change the microclimate uh, ability, which is, I think, good for us because we're trying to do more climate change gardening or climate change evaluation. And maybe there's things that aren't quite ready <laughs> for, for our climate, even though it is changing. And that might be a way for us to protect a little bit. We, we're not really keen on doing any, you know, big machinations to get something through a winter. Okay. 
you know, so we don't do any winter protection either. If it's not going to survive our winter, whatever that means, cold, wet, wind, heaving, whatever it is, it's not going to survive. It's not going to survive. So we're not going to cover it. We're not going to over mulch it. We're not going to, you know, over protect it because it's meant to be an outdoor plant that is completely adaptable. Uh, and if it's not, it's not. So that's great news for Northern gardeners. And I know I have some, but here I am down in Charlottesville, Virginia. So what can you say to me about my conditions versus versus what you're testing for? Does it translate at all? Or can you even see from where you are if it would help somebody like me? I think over the years, what I've heard most from people who are in a different climate is they appreciate the way we go about it. The, the, the fact that it is, uh, there's a procedure, there's a, it, it isn't just sort of whim oriented. We've gone through a process. We've looked at the plants. We've, we've categorized their, you know, their traits, their, their performance, all of that stuff. And they appreciate that, that this is something that is greater than just, uh, yeah, it looks good in Chicago, which I, I do appreciate, but th- that doesn't necessarily make it better for their garden. But I think that what we try to do is stress the idea that this is what happened here. This is what we have. If you're a good gardener or a, you know, a strong gardener, a, a really interested gardener, I think you can make those connections mm-hmm. of how it connects to you. It's never, I don't think it's ever going to be a one for one. Like if I talk about 50 plants, 50 plants are applicable to, you know, like directly, oh, well, this is what we would see. But I do think it opens up people's minds to a plant knowing how how it grew for us helps them understand how it might grow for them. If a person has no, they don't know a salvia from anything that that it's, it's, they're going to look at it like, why are you here? You're in Chicago, we're in Charlottesville or in Seattle, whatever. But I do talks all across the country. And although I get that question, I understand in the end, most people have gained something. And that makes me feel good. Because I don't want to just talk into the wind. Exactly. I can't tell you how excited I am to hear that news, Richard, because your presentation that I sat through is one of the more expensive hours that I've ever spent in my life. Because as you're going (laughs) through this list, I'm ticking off every other plan. And it's a long list. And I'm like, well, I got to have that one. And I got to have that one. Yeah. And See? it was, yeah. And so far, so good. I mean, obviously, it's, it's, uh, that was in August. I did my shopping in September, but I'm, I'm particularly taken, speaking of Hugra, with that wild berry. It just already just coming. Oh, yeah. And it came in the mail and it already looks really robust. Yeah. You know, what, what I have seen, what, the luxury, I, I'm not sure that's the word, but maybe it is, the luxury of having looked at plants for 38 years. And through that, through that course of 38 years, many of the same types of plants who've just gone through a lot of evolution is that I feel very comfortable saying that so much of what you find now in hookeras, the, the really latest stuff is so much better than the early stuff. And that's not, again, not absolute on either end, but I think that there's been a, the breeder, breeders are smarter. They're, they're more thoughtful. I'm not sure what it is. But I, I see that with cone flowers. I see that with hookahs. I see it with other things where there is just there are just better plants now in those groups than there were back then. And I, I think a lot of that comes with listening to the fact that, oh, another hookah failed. Yeah. I mean, at some point you're like, okay, what, what can we do so we don't hear this so often? 
But here's the other side of that, if I could be so bold, is that, you know, I, first of all, I'm, I'm, I always feel kind of a little uh, guilty that I've made people create a greater shopping list. But the bottom line is it's plan information out to people that maybe they're just not aware of. It's kind of interesting to me because I get that question a lot. Well, how is this applicable to me? I don't think I've ever asked Tony Avent that when he's in Chicago. Oh, right. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's presenting his list and pick anybody across the country, John Greenlee from Cal. They're, I'm picking and choosing what they're, what would work for me based on my knowledge. And so that's kind of how I view it. But they don't have to step up and say anything. No one asks them because they're not coming from an evaluation point of view. They're coming from a great plant point of view. In the, you and know, selling what, point of view. And selling and that, all that kind of stuff. If my listeners don't know who Tony Avens is, he is the he is the plantsman behind uh, Garden Delights, and that is a very it's one of my favorite nurseries down in North exactly. North Carolina. But he's growing all these things in North Carolina, and that's not even me. That's seven yeah. B, and I'm seven A. So yeah, good point. Yet he grows a lot of things that we grow perfectly well as as well. I mean, we have a lot of his stuff in our gardens, in our trial, in our gardens. And that my example is there to point out, if you know plants, if you know about plants, if you're interested in plants, you'll connect the dots, even, even if it isn't a one for one. Yeah. And so I do think for us, plant information, getting out plant information is the bottom line. You know, early on in my, in my career, you know, I, we were just basically going along, adding all these plants in, looking at them and loving them. And then one day it just hit me. It's like, yeah, this is a great job. <laughs> but Someday somebody's going to say, what are, you, what are you going to do with that? And that's when I realized you got to publish, you got to speak, you got to lecture, you got to teach, you got to do all that stuff to get that information out to people, whoever those people are, whether they're professionals or amateurs, but to get that information out there. And, you know, we can, we can inform a lot, but ultimately it's up to the, the end user to see, does that work for me? And I've had people who tell me, you know, I tried that. It just didn't work for me. Yeah. And then I've had other people say, you know, we grow that really well. It's too bad you had such poor luck with it. Well, we can compare notes then and figure out, well, why did it work better for them or vice versa? And the same thing could happen in your own yard. I mean, I have that Aurelia Sun King and it's that five by five mass, thankfully, right next to my back, um, my back kitchen you know, deck. But I've tried, I'm like, okay, great. Now I will propagate this or buy a few more and stick them in here, there, and the other because they light up the woods so well. This is a lime green perennial. It's a um, herbaceous perennial that dies down in winter, but it's a fantastic sort of seven month plant for me. And I've had, it's been a disaster in other parts of the same (laughs) 0.8 acres of land. So you never know, right? Yeah, you don't. I mean, I, one of the more recent examples that I, I use when I'm describing that is, Spigelia marilandica, the Indian pink, which is that wonderful native plant with the, 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 the long red tubular flowers with the yellow or chartreuse star-shaped opening on the end. And they're so beautiful and, and they're so desirable. And, and you know, the, the hummingbirds love them and blah, blah, blah. But I tried those repeatedly in my garden at work, that in my shade garden, the original shade garden that's just gone now and been replaced with no luck. I mean, they just wouldn't, they just wouldn't do. And it's like, I'm giving them what they want. What's not happening? So that garden disappeared. And I, I was suddenly 
oh, I've got Spigelia that was going to go in that garden, but it's gone. So I just put them in, in full sun, blazing hot, unpleasant, thrived. <laughs> Things came out of the ground. You couldn't stop so them. So you never know. It, it was it was like, who would have guessed? That's absolutely not what any literature says they wanted. Yeah. And I was giving them all the good stuff they wanted and they didn't like it. So it's hit or miss. It's hit or miss. And I think that's, that's part of what I get to do that maybe is a little, might be a little expensive for a home gardener. I do get to trial. I do get to try them multiple times. Everything gets at least two tries if it fails. It's worth it to me. I think if, especially if we had anything to do with it, like oh, we did not put that in the right place or we didn't water that, we let whatever it happened, then I will try it again if it failed. If it succeeds two years and fails, two years is enough. Okay. I, I don't go back and try those. Yeah. Uh, unless I'm just nutty about the plant and I just want to keep looking at it, then I'll do that. But that's, I can't do that for all, you know, 1200 different types of plants that we have in our. That's tribe. how many you have at any time. Yeah. 1200 different types. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's a, it's a big, it's a big, it's a big, program. it's a big program. Yeah. And it also, by the way, includes that green roof that you can see behind me on that building that's also part of our uh, evaluation program the green, so extremely sharp drainage because i know you i yeah. i heard you say that you have a high water table in the regular evaluation place and then you've got this new shade thing so so lots of good uh different conditions the, a lot of different conditions yeah you right there you see the lake we have 90 acres of lake on our property and, and the lakes are there because we're in a, a very high water table and you know it's reclaimed marshland they tried to farm unsuccessfully and it was just became uh no man's land and so we we did move in here and move land around to create a system of islands so the lakes are super important and and that's why even that building behind me uh is on stilts oh. because uh it, it floats because the, the water table here is so high wow and so do you compute that as you're evaluating a plant? Do you say, okay, well, maybe we try that one more time on the roof garden or in better drainage or whatever it is? You do that? Yes, we do that. And so if if we only have one place to put it and, and we put it there and it doesn't do well and we have a place to try it elsewhere, we will. Sometimes I do things on the green roof because I'm just pushing that envelope because we don't really, you know, when we first started the green roof, we really didn't know what would be absolute. So things that I like that I had in the in the ground plane, I would then say, well, let's duplicate that up there. Things like baptisias, you know, uh, and 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 discovered, you know, although baptisias will grow on a green roof, the the hybrids excel on the green roof oh. because they have that hybrid vigor and they just have a, a faster growth rate and become bigger quicker than any of the species they just excel up there i mean like you put them in the ground the next year they're like full size wow. and this is just in eight inches of, of free draining soil not soil soil less mix okay. and and this is a baptisia that you know baptisia have these traditionally very long tap roots and you know they blah 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 they they seem to do fine and and if by the way if i have the space and i can try a plant in two different locations that are very different, I will do that as well. And that I have less opportunity for that simply because we're trying to do too much. Uh -huh. So replication becomes less of a, although when we first started the trial back in the late eighties, we did do more replication because we had this excess of space, but then it quickly hit 
it strictly struck me one day. It's like if I did if I did smaller groups, I could do more. Oh yeah. And, and now we're there. <laughs> yeah, the garden behind you, that circle you see behind me in this image, the first trials out here, there were just five genera. And every plant in each one of the plants that was out there had a was in a square of 16 plants. Oh. It was stunning. But now they're in rows of five. Okay. So we've been exponentially increased the, the quantity of plants that we can look at. Because diversity, diversity is good for everything, but it's also good for us. It's, it's boring to look at a small group of plants over and over for four years. <laughs> and take all that, you know take all I mean? that information. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Um, so especially if you end up not liking it, you're like, oh, this is burdensome, but uh, we do it anyway. Going back to that idea of you, you know, making this information relevant all over the place. I know that you have a partnership that's been going on with Fine Gardening Magazine, and that's a national magazine. And so as you write those articles, oh, and and also that speaks to the point of getting that information out there. <laughs> Richard has a list longer than actually I wanted to go through of articles that he's written. It's on the website for the Chicago Botanic Garden. It's also on his resume. It was a sort of a dizzying scrolling thing. I'm like, wow, this guy is prolific. Written so much stuff. You think it's stalled and then you realize, oh, it's still going. Uh, More articles, but no, but no books. No book, no book. Yeah. I, I, people ask me that all the time. And, 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 and I have a lot of people now who just basically tell me, oh, it's for your retirement. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, if you're there, remind me. <laughs> I've never had a super great desire to do that. Part of it for me is I'm most comfortable with what I do. And so a lot of times people say, oh, will you write about this? Yeah, that's not really my thing. I'm going to have to do a lot more work to get that a uniqueness to that. You know, someone brought up something the other day that I found kind of intriguing. They said, well, maybe, maybe you should partner with Alan Armitage on his next update of his book. <laughs> I was like, huh, huh, how do I propose that to Alan <laughs> Armitage? You know, I mean, what his is the Bible. His is still the Bible, perennial Bible. Yeah. His newest edition is not that old, and he's talking about another edition of it. And anyway, so it came up, but I don't know. I, I'm still not, I've not ruled it out. Now, I have been approached over the years by people to write books. And the first one was on sedums, and I did not want to do that. And the other, the next one was on coneflowers, and I did not want me permanently attached to coneflowers. The fact of the matter is now that that's probably been 15 years, I could probably consider a, a, a coneflower book. If I was to do just a general book. Yeah, but but couldn't you do it? I mean, I said, I mean, I'm just spitballing, but couldn't you do it? And here's the sedum chapter and here's the coneflower chapter. Yes, yeah. yeah, you could do that. And they would be. Yeah. And that's the thing. So I think that 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 the book, if I wrote a book, it would be based on, you know, just plants that have survived a trial. Okay. And I think that's where I, I feel a little insecure about their whole plant types that I've just avoided because you don't because like them we don't, they don't work here. no because they don't work oh, here okay so it's like you know we've really never done bulbs and we so I, I feel like but then I'm like well we can narrow this or widen it as much as we need to so I think based on you know trying to do an all-inclusive book based on trialing it might not feel that doesn't cover all the plants that it should cover, but maybe it doesn't have. No, maybe it doesn't. Maybe you just start with your top 10, you know, make that such yeah. a Googleable list. Richard's top 10. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it, it's not off the books. Uh, I, I haven't set a retirement aid, a date, 
age or date, by the way. So I don't really know when that's coming, but maybe it is something I consider doing in my uh, in my. Retirement. I'm sure people would look forward to it. So looking back to the Fine Gardening Association, you've been at that for quite a few years now, and it's really helpful. And that also speaks to the evaluations that you do up in Chicago can really be met with you know great enthusiasm and, and welcome by gardeners all over the country. So tell us about that association. You know, working with Fine Gardening has been a really pleasant and a good experience. It's also been very, I think, hopefully beneficial to all gardeners out there who read our information, but beneficial for me to get that information. It's a vehicle that, and it's a group that might, I might not have reached as fully if, I, if it wasn't through Fine Gardening. But this started 12 years ago. This was a two-year project, meant to be just two years. I committed to two years, and then we were going to move on to something else. But we've been doing it for 12 years, and, and, and there's no end date at this point. So it tells me, first of all, fine gardening isn't going to keep including me if, if, if they don't think it has value to their readers. Right. And their readers actually tell them it has value because it, it's often among the top articles in their reader surveys. So people do appreciate it. As we talked about earlier, I mean, everything we look at may not be a one-for-one on all these different parts of the country, but I, it invigorates people to uh, look beyond what they might know and look at something different and see if it's, it, w- it might work for them. So it's opening their minds. At the very least, if you're looking at, you know, three types of Vernonia in the nursery and you're like, well, which one? Then that information exactly. can be available to you if you're up to date on Fine Gardening Magazine. <laughs> exactly. And, and by the way, Fine Gardening allows us to sort of rehash a trial we've done and include new things that we've done since the original trial, but also allows us to preview a trial I've not yet formally reported on in plant evaluation notes, which is our uh, in-house publication that's available also on our website. So it's it's an opportunity for us for talk about plant groups that we're excited about, but we haven't finished yet. Yeah, and the information that you're gathering, it's so great to get it out. So as I mentioned, uh, watching Richard speak was an expensive adventure for me, but a really good one because I was so excited to say, oh, okay, so that Agastache and not that one or whatever it was. So because I'm a little bit selfish and it's my podcast, we're going to go down through the <laughs> list of plants that I have bought and I want to get his take on how I did. So the first one that we mentioned already was the wildberry heuchera. And as I said, it came, it came in the mail and is already gangbusters. So we're good on that. That's one of the deep purple ones. If you're, if you're, I was always an obsidian or purple palace lady. And now, now I'm i I'm, I'm wildberry. I'm a wildberry lady. You're right. It is purple. Yeah. Very purple. It's not, you know, burgundy or bronzy. It's purple. It's a cool color. Yeah, it's yeah. not. It's not a. It's not a warm color. How about that allium lavender bubbles? I'm excited about that one because I already grow millennia. Yeah. So lavender bubbles is the the main difference. It has a darker flower and flowers a little bit later than millennium. But its main, I think, the thing that might make people better able to tell the two apart. It has a blue green twisted leaf so whereas the the millennium has a very flat leaf this is twisted now that sound again it's going to be one of those kind of is that a nerd thing like <laughs> absolutely regular, someone who likes plants going to get that i saw them this earlier this summer at walter's gardens and they had them in side by side by a whole by the way a whole field of them 
oh. and side by side. And they are very distinctly different, even though I could see if you weren't paying attention, you might, you might be able to think they're the same, but yeah, it's a great plant, a good, strong plant. It's a, it's a good one. As I mentioned earlier with breeding, I think we're going to start seeing, it's not just about competition. I think there's a level of better, what's the word I want, like just better quality. I think breeding is, is they're being pushed to do better, not just put out something new. Yeah. Yeah. Better and yeah, better longevity, better, yeah. I don't know, what, whatever it is that we're looking for. It doesn't flop. It doesn't get mildew. It, yeah. you know, it flowers longer, all those groovy things that we love. How about, um, I've got the, <laughs> you kind of laughed when you said this in Asheville, but um, I did this, the geranium boom chocolata. <laughs> yeah. Boom chocolate. I've now said it twice. I, I, you know, <laughs> I said it in public for the first time in, in Asheville and I said it again. It's kind of in the same vein. If you're, if you're familiar with Victor Ryder uh, or Midnight Ryder, uh, there's a couple others with the dark, well, with a purple leaf, it doesn't stay purple the whole season. Uh, this is in that same vein, but I've grown all those, and this is by far the the most vigorous, the most predictable, if that's if that's the, the word I want. Where it's like I know what's coming. Uh-huh. You know, with Victor Rider and Midnight Rider, yeah, I don't know what's coming because <laughs> it's not in the same place it was the year before, or right. it's like really tiny but really healthy, and then the next year it's really big. So this one has been very consistent. So it has a nice dark bronze uh, burgundy overlay on the leaf, and it's a lacy leaf geranium, and then those purple-blue flowers above. Now, the only thing I would say about this this plant versus something like Roseanne, which kind of flowers all season long, is this one does have a period where the the deadheads, the the twigginess of all the, the flowers that just sit right on top that that plant can look a little shabby. Okay. And that's maybe the point where you're like, okay, maybe I should shear this. Mm-hmm. I don't believe after years and years of watching plants, I don't believe it's going to rebloom any better if you shear it. I think it will rebloom. It reblooms anyway. Because you you all would not have sheared it at the trial. Right. We don't. But by the way, I did say that earlier. Now we have in our time done specific deadhead testing oh. where we've deadheaded half of a, a group and left the other un, um, deadheaded. And I would say that the general consensus in the trial doing that for multiple years, by the way, because we like to, everything we like to see more, multiple times was there was no significant increase in rebloom on a deadheaded plant. Huh. You just saw the flower better. It looked like there was more, more flowering. Because you're not competing with all that dead stuff. Right. And so we would find the, the level, the quantity, the, the percentage, whatever way you want to look at, was pretty much exactly the same. But we haven't done that with everything, but we've done that with a lot of things. In particular groups where, like salvias, where people say, oh, you have to deadhead this to get more flower. You do not have to deadhead. Oh, wow. Now you, it's going to look better deadheaded. Oh, yeah. But if you're lazy <laughs> like me... And I am a lazy home gardener. I am not going to deadhead, or I might deadhead when it's like, oh God, that is really gruesome. I'll get to it, but I'm not going to do it to increase bloom because I know it's going to it's going to bloom on its own anyway. 
that's really good information to have because yeah, people who, okay, it's in the backyard. Why should I walk 50 yards to go make something look better that I'm not looking at anyway. And if, if it can reflower and attract those pollinators, especially on native ours or native plants, that's really good to know. And, and that it kind of goes back to the end user. And one of our end users of our information are contractors. Yes. And, you know, not the home gardener. And they don't want a plant that they have to put a lot of effort into in a client's garden or a landscape. But they also want to know, well, okay, so it's going to look a less attractive when it's, when it's not deadheaded, but it's not falling apart. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you, we'd be able to tell them, it's like, if you don't deadhead this, it, the whole plant just goes bad. And that is the case, actually, with some geraniums. Some of the early blooming geraniums, if you don't deadhead them, you're going to, the, the foliage starts looking shabby. And once that goes, you kind of have to just shear everything off. Yeah. And so those are the kind of thing. And by the way, like I mentioned, uh, Roseanne is not like that. There's others, uh, geranium macrorhizum, geranium cantabrigiense. They don't require any, any cutback ever, but uh, some of the other stuff really does. And, and, and that's, so we, we do look at that because ultimately it's not necessarily just a home gardener that's going to want to know this information. Yeah, people in the industry do too. Okay, yeah. so let's move on to one that doesn't have such a silly name, um, Chocolata. Uh, uh, boom, boom, Chocolata. So I am very jealous of people in Charlottesville who can grow um, pink muley grass. So that's the Muhlenbergia. And you mentioned one in the talk that is better than I guess what I'm trying to grow because well, it's called Undaunted. It has an actually a very uh, dignified name and I am very excited about the possibility. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, so Undaunted is a plant select introduction and plant select is a introduction program in Colorado. And I think primarily they're looking at native plants and I think one of their main focuses are plants for xeric or dry conditions. And this plant is drought tolerant. It actually tolerates poor soil and droughty conditions. But the, the fact is it actually prefers an even moisture. So it, it will tolerate that, but it actually uh, would like a, a more even garden soil. Now we, we grow it here and I've had it in the garden for, I think, seven years. And, and, you know, seven years is well beyond expiration date, but I love that plant. And I just, I don't want to get rid of it. This is not very scientific, Richard. No, no, it's not at all. And it, 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 but it's one of those kind of things, and I joke about this all the time. It's like what it, what's out here and what we're looking at isn't like, I like it, I'm going to say it's a good plant. It's not that. But in the end, it is my talk, and I'll talk about what I like. And this is one of those. <laughs> but it is a great plant. In this case, it's a great plant. But anyway, it's, it's a, it has these wonderful pink flowers. It is a muley that we can grow. You know, the, the, the East Coast muleys for, don't do well for us. This one gets, in our trial, has gotten to be about 40 inches, 36, 40 inches tall. Nice. So it's, it's got a nice size. It's not, it's not too, too tall. But now, because we plant things apart, it actually has reached five feet wide. So it's, Whoa. it's a big dome. And it's, it's very feathery, fine-textured. And beautiful any, anyway, because of its soft texture, but backlit from the sun yeah. is just absolutely stunning. And it kind of glows, even though it's a pink. You may not think of pink as glowing. It kind of glows on the landscape. And it ages well. It never falls apart. 
It doesn't matter what the rain is, doesn't matter what the irrigation, because we do overhead irrigate in our garden, uh, which is unfortunately can cause a lot of trouble. And we know that, but we don't have an option. But this is one that doesn't fall apart. It doesn't split open. It doesn't lodge. It's just beginning to end. It's just as a perfect dome. And everybody loves it. It makes the angels sing. It's like, yeah. whoa, <laughs> I cannot wait. Mine are, mine are currently two inches across, so I'm waiting for it. People who come to the trial garden. Do they get a little teary? This is, you know, you can watch. When you're out there, it's always interesting to watch who's standing around and looking at things. And sometimes you think, oh, they're just following the leader because other people are standing there and like, what is it? What, what's here? But that is what's here. And so they're at least getting that. But so it's always interesting to watch. And, and this grass, Undaunted, is one of those plants out there that will draw a crop. I am it's so excited. Amazing. All right, last one. And this is a swan song from my list. Um, although I did want to tell you, um, ask you about a bad news plant that I have bought, you know, because it was recommended by you through fine gardening for many years. And I, and I put it in a lot of people's yards when I had my business and that's the Andropogon Blackhawks and it's done very poorly for me. And I'm wondering, you don't have great drainage. I don't have great drainage, but you've got good success with this plant. You know, Blackhawks is a, is a, a phenomenal big blue stem. It's such a dark purple that it's almost black. I mean, in, in probably you could say at points, she's like, it is black. It's so dark, but, the primary color is coming from the stem mm -hmm. and the inflorescence, whether it's unopened, you know, flowered, and then it's now fruit. It's that color through there that gets, and it gets progressively as the season goes on, it gets, it gets darker. And the foliage is also dark purple or burgundy. By the time, I think by the time the upper color is at its peak, that's starting to brown out. Usually in landscape, that doesn't matter because you've got it positioned so you're seeing the top anyway. Mine isn't mine isn't so so dark, honestly. Yeah, see, and, that, and that's the part I'm wondering about with you. Would, well, there's a couple of things. Heat, your heat and humidity High, yeah. would be different than ours. Sure. I have a poor clay, you know, poorly drained at times clay soil, so it's heavy. Mm -hmm. And it does really, and I've had it in two different places in my trials, do two different times. It has done exceptionally well. And that color you can count on. Yes. Another thought I might have besides the heat and humidity is I'm wondering, as I do all the time, I'm a little bit of a... Finnick? Um, <laughs> Finnick, yeah. So I kind of wonder if maybe, yeah, maybe a little more than a little. Anyway, that... Is is are they selling you the right, right thing? Exactly. Is this a seed source that they've decided to call Blackhawks, or is it something else? Is it Blackhawks? Because everywhere I have seen Blackhawks, it is dark. Yeah. It's not always as dark as I've seen it here, uh -huh. but you can tell. You walk upon it and you're like Blackhawk. Okay. Part of it is also it's only five feet tall. Yeah, well, mine is mine is not even. I mean, and it and it looks like the same plant I put in the ground three seasons ago that was in a six inch pot. It is it is pathetic. <laughs> it's never a rousing endorsement, right? <laughs> I'm gonna look online and compare photographs, but maybe also send you photographs because I'm I'm thinking maybe that's it. I and mean, that's weird, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, last one is aptly named. This is the Vernonia summer swan song. So this is an ironweed. It's a really good native R, and I'm excited because it's big, but it's not too, too big. The species can get ridiculously tall. And, and so tell us about summer swan song. Yeah. So summer swan song, 
I amassed a collection of Vernonias because I love them. And I, lo- I actually like the fact that they're tall. I'm 6'2". I kind of like a perennial that I can kind of look right at. That makes always makes it sound like I'm, I don't have the ability to bend down. But, but the point is, I, I'm not a fan of this. Everything needs to be tiny. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's not my thing. I'm kind of the, the opposite of that. I kind of like things to be the height. And so to me, a 15 foot Vernonia is like, that's insane. That's awesome. And by the way, it is. And it was one of the biggest straws in our trial garden, Jonesboro Giant. If, if you look for it, and you're looking for a really awesome 15 foot perennial. It doesn't, it doesn't fall over. Doesn't fall, doesn't flop. Does it, it was out there in the, it, right in this garden for years. It's another one, by the way, I left longer than it should have Because <laughs> you liked it. Because I just got to like it. And it ultimately transferred to our children's campus because everybody thought that would be an amazing thing for yeah. kids would love it. And I, I guess they do. So we, we, but in that mix of all those tall Vernonias was a fairly recent introduction called a Vernonia Lettermani Iron Butterfly. And it is, I mean, it's such a great name, by the way, Iron Butterfly, Iron Weed. It's a butterfly magnet. I mean, it's such a great name. I think there, personally, I think there was a doobie involved, but <laughs> I know who named it. I, I, I think there might have been one. But anyway, I, <laughs> it's a great, great plant. Feathery texture. If you look at the plant when it's not in flower and it flowers in the fall with the same purple uh, flowers that you see on all Vernonias, you might think it's an Amsonia hubrechtii, one of the blue stars, because it has a very, very similar mm-hmm. feathery texture to its foliage. So our plant breeder at the time, Dr. Jim Ald, he decided he wanted to breed with with the iron weeds. So he did. And out of that came three introductions. And the first one was summer swan song, which is the shortest at 36 inches tall. And then going up from there, he's got summer's end, which is 42 inches tall. And then the tallest one is 48 is a summer surrender. But I personally like summer swan song the best, which is why it's in my talk, you know, versus the other ones. Although summer's end, I think is pretty phenomenal. But I really like it because I like the size of it. It's a dome-shaped plant. It's more floriferous, which just means it has more flowers than iron butterfly. And the flowers produced across the whole plant. Whereas on iron butterfly, they, there's a lot of flowers, by the way. Don't get me wrong. But this one just seems to produce more flowers. And, and by the way, the flowers on it, as well as any other Vernonia, are enormous pollinator magnets. So any, any insect that pollinates is going to be on that plant. So it's got a compactness to it. It only gets about three feet tall. But here's where here's where the sort of botanical nerdy gardening nerdiness comes in. It's it's claim to fame over iron butterfly is that at a point in the summer when it's getting ready to bloom, the simple or straight stem at the terminal branches. So you basically get this spray of flowers that come off the tip of the plant. Well, those sprays sort of interlock with each other where they touch. They just sort of weaving amongst, let's say that they're weaving themselves together, which again, is kind of like a hard thing to, to put on a label that this is its selling point. But what that does is it keeps that plant upright in no matter what the weather conditions are. Wow. So if it's really windy, if it's really raining, uh, if it's got a lot of overhead irrigation, that plant stays together. Whereas if you do the same thing, and we did, and saw the same thing because we had the plant side by side. If you do that same thing to 
both Lettermanii, the species, and iron butterfly, the cultivar, they just splay open. Now, early on in the season, before the flowers have come on, they tend to bounce back. Once the flowers are on, the heavier, the more places for water to hold, they don't bounce back easily or quickly or, or at all. But with Summer Swan Song, it stays upright. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited that I chose that one. That was the only one I could get. Yeah, it's a, it's a good one. I think you had two on the list, and that was the one I could get. And it sounds like I lucked out. This is, I mean, who else has a personal shopper when you go shopping for perennials? Just me. Just me. <laughs> Richard, this is so fun. I want to uh, touch on one more thing before we say goodbye, and that is... You are the president-elect of a, an organization that some of my listeners probably don't know about. It's called the Perennial Plant Association, and it's geared a lot toward the industry, and a lot of my listeners are not in the industry, and yet it's open to the public somewhat. Will you tell us about it? Yeah, so the Perennial Plant Association uh, was founded in the early 80s by a group of perennial enthusiasts, kind of nutty plant people, who said, this is a group that we need to, needs more press. And to be honest, I mean, I, when I came to the garden in the mid 80s, hardly anyone grew perennials. I started going to Perennial Plant Association National Symposia in 1986. And it was a pretty small group of people, but it has grown a lot. And, and then we, you know, the industry kind of downsized and it's downsized, but we're, we're on the up again that we're, our membership has grown quite well in the last two years when other organizations have lost membership. But it's, it is a uh, professional organization. Uh, it's, it's meant to bring together perennial plant enthusiasts, but also professionals. So nurseries, garden centers, growers, uh, all level, wholesalers, retailers, gardeners, you know, professional gardeners, botanic gardens, all that, researchers, educators, all of the, that. That makes up the whole thing. But we also do have a category for just interested uh, people people who just love perennials and want to learn about perennials and be in the mix of people who know a lot about perennials and love to talk about them. And, you know, and we do a lot of education across our various regions. Some regions are bigger than others, like the West is huge. The central region, which is partially part of the Midwest is huge. But then we also got in mid-Atlantic and a, a Northeast and Southern and Great Lakes regions. And within those regions, we do we do regional education programs that are open, always open to the general public. And we do get a lot of attendees mm -hmm. from just general public master gardeners are a big part of that. And then every year we do a national meeting that moves around this past year or this year, it was in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and it brought together, I forget it was something like 600 people who love perennials and a lot of education, a lot of great talks, tours to nurseries, tours to private gardens, tours to botanic gardens, at least four days. And you can lengthen that to five if you want to do the other stuff of just intense plant stuff. And, and so it is a wonderful thing. And, you know, and one of the other things we do every year, we name a perennial. Uh -huh. It's voted on by our members and we, we vote on it. We agree on it. It gets, it gets nominated, then it gets voted up. And if it becomes the perennial plant of the year. Nice. This year, it is little blue stem, Schizocurium scoparium, the species as well as any cultivar. It's kind of different for us, but we, we decided in the end, it's like the species 
in general is a great plant, but uh-huh. every region might grow different cultivars that are better for them. So it allows those regions to promote the ones that are really good for them. Next year, we just announced it's the Rudbeckia American Gold Rush, which is an amazing, amazing perennial. So yeah, I, I am the, I will be the president, officially the president of October of next year. We'll see. <laughs> uh, it's a great organization. I don't know if they know what they're getting themselves into, uh, letting me manage them. <laughs> I'm sure you'll do a great But I, I do believe that, you know, my love and my experience and my interest in perennials has brought me to this point after all these years. And it's, a, it's an organization I, I feel very strongly about as, as a good institution. And the people, there's some of the best people I've ever met in my life are in this organization. Just, you know, people who come to these meetings, people I've known, and I've, I've become great friends with them. Well, that speaks volumes. It's a great, great group. Well, I'm so glad to have you speak on it because I think, um, you know, a lot of my listeners are keen gardeners and they could look into local events if it's a possibility for them. And I'll put links to all that information um, on the show notes that go with this uh, with this podcast episode. Richard, I am so appreciative of the time you've taken to walk us through the trials and why it's important to look at all these things. And and thank you so much for your information. Uh, You're welcome. Always happy to uh, pass on information, whether you ask for it or not. (laughs) You're so generous. We'll be right back to talk about what's going to be going on in your garden this week. Welcome back into the Garden with Leslie. Are you ready to create the garden of your dreams? GreatGardenPlants.com is here to help. With over 800 plants to choose from, you'll find exciting new varieties as well as old favorites. Their website makes plant shopping easy. You can use filters to figure out zone, light, color, and more. And once you're ready to order, they let you select your own ship date at checkout. So your plants won't come the very day you decided to get out of your frozen climate and visit a coconut island. And if you're worried about shipping plants in the mail... Just don't worry. They arrive in great condition, but they are guaranteed. And as a listener of this show, you can save 10% on your first order with the code GARDENWITHLESLIE. So visit greatgardenplants.com and shop with the code GARDENWITHLESLIE and get some, hey, great garden plants. Richard's list of plants was so fun. And you know, he does a lot of public speaking. So if you ever get a chance to hear him, go do it. Besides hearing about all the plants, he has fabulous slides. And so you'll get to learn even more. And those zillions of articles that he's written for fine gardening and otherwise, yeah, I'll link to those in the show notes. And I'll put photographs of the ones that I'm falling for right now, all the ones we discussed in detail. Also, a link to Peter Wirtz, who is the designer of the new part of the trial garden. So what is going on in my garden right now? Well, I've started a lot of seeds. And then, of course, as soon as I did that, I went out of town for a week. So so clever, huh? But my buddy Abby of Abigail Gardens, which is the super cool latest version of my former business, did not let them dry out and some have germinated. So here's what I'm trying. Don't don't get all excited thinking that like, oh, wow, early tomatoes. No, everything I've sown so far is either a perennial or a hardy annual. And in terms of the latter, I already got some snapdragons and white larkspur, which is a packet I picked up from Great Dixter, to germinate last fall. But I thought I would hedge my bets and do a few more Also, I'm one of those people who's a little bit wary of the open, half-gone seed packet, and I like to try to finish them off. What else have I done? Oh, um, Verbena bonariensis. This one, you know, kind of a silly choice for me because it self-sows willy-nilly in my garden. And yet I had the seed packet. Somebody gave it to me, I guess. 
and I had the potting medium. So I thought, well, let's have a little clutch of them that I can actually control. You're going to go here exactly where I say. So that's my idea behind that verbena. Okay, I'm going to tell a little story and it's sort of at someone's expense, but not really. It's my mother-in-law. She is an incredibly intelligent and well-read woman, but she has a funny way of mixing up the pronunciation of some words. So if you know the verbena I'm talking about, it's the really tall one that's so airy and it can grow at the front of the border, even though it's three or four feet tall. The adjective is bonariensis, which refers to its place of origin, which is Buenos Aires. So bonariensis makes sense. It's a wonderful see-through plant, pollinator, and self-sower. Anyway, dear Betty, my mother-in-law, calls this plant Verbena brontosaurus. And I, <laughs> I know it's not even that funny, but now that you've heard it, you might not be able to unhear it. And I hope you think of my dear 98-year-old mother-in-law and that special name she has unwittingly shared with me and given me great joy over the years because, I don't know, it just makes me laugh. The Verbena brontosaurus. Neither she nor her baby boy, my husband, listen to this podcast, so I think I'm okay to share this. Mary, don't tell. Mary's my sister-in-law. She's a master gardener, and she does tend to listen. So shh, hush on the brontosaurus. Okay, what else? Um, every time I go to England, which I did last summer, I get all jazzed up about delphinium, which I've never really been able to grow. So hope springs eternal, and I got this packet called Yankee Mix. Perhaps if I treated delphinium more like larkspur, just like an annual or maybe a two-season plant, then I could get some more joy out of it, right? Right. Just just say yes and we'll move on. My pal Marianne Wilburn and I both brought home packets of opium poppy from Great Dixter, and we decided that we would write to each other if we were slammed in jail by the customs officials, but that didn't happen, so I'm sowing those. I have never been good at growing poppies. And do you know that feeling of Wow, everybody else can grow poppies, so I must be a crap gardener. One of the mysteries for me is that you're always told to sow them where they're going to go. But my garden is so cram-jammed, I can't, I can't keep an eye on them just by emptying seed packets in the snow, like some people so romantically allege is the right strategy. So I've sown them in my little takeout food containers, and I have some germination, it seems to me that if I just wait until they get a second set of leaves and very carefully tease them out into a bigger pot or more probably where they actually want to go because they definitely don't like to be moved, then I think that's better than just dumping packets of seeds around the place. The success of that practice has resulted in exactly zero poppies in my garden, so let's change it up. This is the Papaver somniferum or somniferum. And the common name is the opium poppy, and I swear I'm just interested in the flower. That's the truth, officer. Next on this list is a packet of echinacea, which is called yellow ombre. Or is it ombre? I don't know. This was given to me by I don't know who. So I think I've mentioned that I'm more of a pink and purple and white, you know, cool colors girl. But I'm happy to have some buttery yellow in my garden. And that is what this echinacea appears to be in some internet photos. Disturbingly, in others, it's a strong athletic gold. Still, I had the seeds. I sowed the seeds. We'll see what goes on. And lastly, I had a few of the Yorktown onion that my Instagram friend Susan Carter had given me, I think about a year ago. I had never met Susan until she tapped on the door just a couple weeks ago before a basketball game. She was in town to visit her son, and I was so pleased to meet her and her husband in person, even though we, we couldn't visit for very long. Anyway, I was relieved to hear that she actually has a pretty hard time germinating these seeds herself. 
It seems it just likes to do its own thing over there where she lives in Yorktown, Virginia. It's a self-sower, but if you try to interfere, yeah, apparently it just doesn't like that. So she sent them to me. This will be my fourth and final attempt at germination because that's the last of them. Glad to know that she has a hard time with it also. So it's really more of a fun adventure than a bitter disappointment teed up to happen yet again. (laughs) Because of all these plants that I'm talking about being cold hardy, I'm going to be hardening them off and getting them outside in or near the cold frame as soon as they get to be big boys with two or three sets of leaves. Now, if you're a beginning gardener, here's just a little tip on hardening off plants. I used to think, hey, they can take these temperatures, stick them out there. Even if they're perfectly hardy in cold temperatures, they were born in 65 degrees. They started their lives in 65 degrees and cellularly, they are going to have a tough transition to get to tolerating, you know, it gets down to 30s and sometimes 20s here at night right now in Virginia. So they're going to be fine with that when they're established. I mean, their root systems will be fine with that. With the exception of the snapdragons, the larkspur, and the borderline hardy verbena brontosaurus, haha, these are all herbaceous perennials whose foliage will completely disappear next winter, and they'll go night-nights, and they'll survive next winter's freezes just fine. But I won't do them any favors by slamming them outside as tiny babies without a tiny baby puffy jacket until they get used to the cold. So I'm going to use my cold frame and warm days and I'll get them hardened off gradually as they grow. And that is what you do to meet more success. The other thing I'm going to do with my next set of seeds is something that I just did not imagine would be on my list. I ordered a bunch of different seeds from Prairie Moon Nursery, and this is a wonderful source for native perennials. And don't tell my husband, but I expanded some existing beds and I cut into his precious lawn. So I'm looking to grow a bunch of new things in my new square footage. Man, I really hope that Jeff doesn't mysteriously start listening to this podcast, or at least that he doesn't start with this episode. So I'm not a lose the lawn girl. I think lawns are important and useful, but they don't have to be huge. Now, do they? Anyway, so I have these seeds and let me just go down the list quickly of what I ordered. Five plants. Liatris or Liatris, as some people say, Ligustylis, which is meadow blazing star, Monarda bradburyana or Bradbury Monarda, Lespedeza capitata or the round headed bush clover, Asclepius viridis, which is also spider milkweed, and lastly, Ceanothus americanus or New Jersey tea. Now, at this point, it would be a waste of everybody's time. And I would give myself the old Sports Illustrated curse if I were to go into details about all these plants. But let's just keep it simple. I chose them because I like their looks, because I hadn't grown them before, and because they're all great native pollinators. If they germinate and if I keep them alive, then I'll start talking about them. Prairie Moon has an amazing catalog and website, and I will link to it in the show notes. But here's the disappointment. Everything that I ordered has this like wet stratification thing that I have to do. Wait, what? Like literally the directions say that I have to rinse or soak the seeds and I have to wrap them up just so in a coffee filter or paper towel and a baggie and put them in the fridge for like 60 days, some of them, some 30. I'm a little bummed because I just thought I would slam them into the compost and say, let's go. However, I'm ready to be a good learner. I'm pretty sure the people at Prairie Moon know more about germinating seeds than I do. I just thought I would share that information with you so you can come along on my let's try to be a patient grown-up gardener person journey and see if any of these things work out for me in spring. 
But first, I have to get through this 60-day wait-for-it thing. (laughs) What else am I doing in the garden? Pruning. It is time, and I am loving it. Every shrub, every tree gets a look. I say to it, hey, are you too big? Are you growing over something else? Would I like to plant something at your feet so now I will limb you up? Do you need more air? Do I want to see something that's behind you? Am I continuing with my torture program that makes you look like a lollipop or a bowling ball? Or keeping up with the strategy to keep you at seven feet so I don't have to get out the ladder for you? So every plant gets his questions and there is hacking to be done. Even just a couple of years ago, I would have taken everything that I cut and if it were small enough, I would add it to my compost pile. My rule of thumb is sort of like a size of a pencil for woody material to go into my compost pile. And if it was bigger than that, I would have bundled it up for my neighbor's landscapers to come and take it away. But no more. Now what I do is if it's small enough, I chop chop it in place as an extra layer of mulch right there over the leaves that are already the mulch. And if it's bigger than that, I add it to the back edges of my yard where I have lots of sticks and debris just hanging out there, hoping to provide some physical shelter for beasties until it breaks down and provide some really good material for the smaller guys and it feeds the soil. So I can see the debris decently well. Well, I can see my compost piles extremely well, but I'm proud of those. The loose debris that I pile up, mostly behind things, but somewhat visible, especially at this time of year, I'm adjusting my eye and I'm liking the look. And you actually do have to look fairly hard to see it. So I'm wondering if you could start some habitat in the corners of your yard. It's not the same type of gardening as growing beautiful roses or yummy vegetables, but it's really good for your property and your soil and for our earth because those things don't go into a landfill and they just stay improving your soil on your land. The last thing I wanted to mention is feeding the birds. I only have two feeders going this year, but I have them perfectly positioned to see them well right outside of my kitchen, and I'm really enjoying them. Now, when they're empty, and this is new for me, I get them down, and I give them a quick clean with a little bit of Clorox and water and a scrub brush, and I dry them, and I get them back up again, clean and full of food. You know, there are these avian diseases that you just don't want to risk spreading around. I mentioned a few weeks ago a podcast that I heard. It was a guest of Margaret Roach's on her podcast, A Way to Garden, That was her December 10th episode with Julie Zakfus, and it was very informative, and it has inspired me to clean my feeders. She said once a week, I'm just going to do it when they're empty, which is, I don't know, once every one or two weeks. I linked to that episode in the show notes back then, and I'll do it again if you want to go back and listen to that episode on A Way to Garden. It's incredibly informative about feeding birds in your garden. So if you're new to this show, I tend to mention something that I've listened to or read in this section called The Playlist, just in case I can curate some information that we might not all have time to find in our busy lives. A lot of the times it's a podcast, but not always. I tend to refer information that interests me, and I feel like it might be useful for you, dear listener, either to get a condensed version of that information or to get you started off in the right direction to get more information on your own. And I often mention Joe Lample's podcast, Joe Gardner. It's a really good one, and he has great guests. His latest one, or the latest one that I listened to, is about bonsai. And it's really interesting, but (laughs) here's my take on it. Bonsai is intensely, acutely, extraordinarily, and according to the expert guests that he had on, prohibitively difficult. I sort of thought it was something you could fiddle around with, and I've had a couple of little things myself that I've plucked out with varying degrees of success. But according to Joe's guests, 
this man named Bjorn Bjornholm. It's like, it's, I mean, the message was sort of like, don't bother. <laughs> um, but he does teach courses. But he told of how it took years for him as an apprentice just to understand how to water these things properly. It was a, well, let's just say that it wasn't the, hey, let's all give it a go type podcast. It was more like a, uh, this is an art form and it takes years to master. So maybe you don't even bother. All right. I'm, I'm probably exaggerating a little bit. And he does touch on the basics of beginner bonsai art. And he has some useful suggestions in terms of potting medium and what plants to start with. Juniper in a word. And Japanese maples are pretty easy. But from there, the whole thing goes rather steeply and somewhat discouragingly up toward an unattainable level. So if you're interested in bonsai and you want more information on how you can't do it, I'm just kidding, you can do it, you can do it, but, but it sounds tough, I'll put the link in the show notes. It was definitely interesting, tiny bit, tiny bit strange. I felt like, well, let's just say that I didn't feel totally encouraged, but I definitely learned. I basically learned how I will never be good at this. No, I'm just kidding. Bjorn Bjorn Home even offers courses and for beginners even. So yeah, so I do recommend the podcast. Hey, I'd like to mention all the lovely people who contribute to Into the Garden with Leslie on coffee. There's a link for that on my website. And I love these donations because I don't like working for free, basically. <laughs> so keep them coming. And thank you so very, very much to all the people who have donated in the past. Some of you, you can just donate one time. But right now, I'd like to mention by name all of the monthly subscribers who give me a little bit something each month in return for this podcast that I put together. And I really appreciate their contributions. And they are Leslie Galenner. I hope I pronounced that right, Leslie. Even if you spell your name with a Y, I still want to pronounce your name right. Kaki Pearson, Daryl Mathers, Catherine Dugan, Kim Villarreal, which in America might be Villarreal, but anyway. And Mary Wright Baylor, Liz Hayes, and Gina Sullenberger. I always mention my sponsors, of course, and you all are my sponsors in your very generous and private way. And thank you so much for your help. This was fun. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, please reach out to me. I am Leslie Harris, LH at Instagram, and my website is lhgardens.com. I'd like to thank our corporate or more corporate sponsors, Dos Amigos Landscaping, Color Blends Bulbs, GreatGardenPlants.com, and my friend, artist Karen Blair. By the way, Color Blends is still happening. It's a third generation bulb company offering top size flower bulbs directly to ambitious residential gardeners and landscape professionals at wholesale prices. And they are still having their 20% off sale while supplies last. And I just looked just this minute and yes, there are some bulbs and yes, you can still plant bulbs. I named the show Into the Garden with Leslie because I'm really into gardening. I want to get you into your garden, and I will see you next time. 